0: Okay, welcome to the Andyplex. This is episode one of this podcast. I'm your host, Andy Majorano, and I want this to be a journey into the world of filmmaking and film genesis, as well as a place for film buffs to eavesdrop and and chime in and uh, nerd out and geek out. But at the end of the day, I'm a film buff. I built a movie theater in my apartment. It's a projector, blasts right on the wall, got it up to 180 inches. And I'm obsessed. And uh, thanks to people for coming over and giving me a social life because I have a hard time leaving this beautiful prison slash paradise that I built for myself here in Hollywood. So today um, is a very, very special episode for a multitude of reasons. One, it's the first one. So welcome and thank you for chiming in. And two, I have... Someone here who is a writer in Hollywood, and I can't wait to uh, riff with him about all things film and about hearing his journey. And also, I feel like he's an old friend, even though this is only our second time. His name is Philip Gawthorne. We'll call you Phil. Phil, do you want to go as Phil or do you want to be Philip? How do, you, how do you want to go? Phil is fine. Phil's fine? All right, Phil, well, thank you for coming to my apartment here in Koreatown in uh, Hollywood, Los Angeles, and I uh, met this guy just a few weeks ago, and I was wearing a John Carpenter shirt, and he chimed in, and the story starts from there. So Phil, welcome aboard. Thank Thanks you. for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. So you're a writer in I this am. crazy world. Um, you can tell by your accent, you're not an American of uh, from birth. That is true. not to you know, not to put people in boxes. I don't like that much, but. Uh, you know, uh, you are originally from the UK? Uh, that's right, and
1: I have to be very... Last time I did an interview, not that I do many of them, but I was absolutely slammed by all my British friends for apparently having a bit of a American twang, so I'm going to be terribly... British. <laughs> now, really you're, now you're just kind of lost like in the middle. Here. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm kind of in a weird transatlantic space where I'm neither <laughs> fish nor fowl. And then you're, you know, <laughs> annoy everybody, both your British friends and your American friends. So that's the sweet <laughs>
0: spot where I'm at. Well, now you're in your own little universe. Uh, you have a tangential little, you know, parallel universe where you're just out there. Exactly. Well, anyway, um, I'm really excited to just kind of pick your brain about your journey and, you know, beginning to now and, uh, you know, just give us give us some deets here, Phil. What uh, what made you want to be a writer? What what was the was there a moment where you were watching a particular film, or was there a moment where there was an inception, or was it kind of a, a slower burn where you're like, okay, I just think I want to go this route?
1: Well, I, I, I sort of had a few um interest in a few dalliances with a few other uh job paths, but for me, I always loved storytelling and and um, you know transformers was always something i i remember being an inception point because um i was obsessed with the cartoons and they had uh, but they had spin-off books as well and which i would read and sometimes my mom would read them to me this by the way was when i was uh, like four or five. It was an appropriate age to still be, (laughs) to still be, uh, you know, watching cartoons. Hey, it's still
0: appropriate. No judgment. This is a judgment free zone here at the Andyplex. Um, But I
1: remember loving Transformers. I remember right, starting to write my own Transformers story and and it got read at um, the, the, this was in infant school. So I would have been about four or five. And I was asked to read this, this, uh, this Transformers story that I'd written in front of the whole uh, sort of assembly um, of course it lasted over, uh, the allotted time and everyone just, the bell rang and everyone just left and no one, you know, uh, gave, gave, uh, you know, gave a hoot. Uh, but I do remember that moment of, of going, okay, well, I guess I just love telling stories and, 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 you know, it was science fiction, um, robots, an amazing world, an amazing mythology. And I think there's something about, you know, Optimus Prime in particular as a character that is, is, is an iconic figure because he, as a child, you're seeing this this character who is uh, teaching you values. Is it, you know, courage, valor, leadership. How you now? This is not. This is all un, unconscious, but nonetheless, there's some, there's there's something very powerful about uh, the messaging, even in something as seemingly, you know, you could say it, it, it's trite. It's just cartoons. It's just toy commercials. But I would, you know, I would argue otherwise. So
0: that's how I remember. There's right. a mythology there right. that you stumbled sure. on and that you captivated you. Absolutely, yeah, you know, and it gave you, you a I medium could. to to play in, and uh, that's great. So Transformers really um, was it was it the the eighty four film or was it the show or just it was the show? But then yeah.
1: then the movie really the 86, uh, 86. A, a animated a feature length movie really consolidated. That was. I mean, I still. as soon as you hear the opening bars of the... Mm-hmm. the it's, it's so elevated from a, a lot of the animated content of that time, the level of artistry that went into that movie, and why I think it um, still has a, a passionate fan base, you know, however many years we are now, 35-plus years, I suspect. Uh, you know, my maths isn't very good, as you'll soon, soon discover. <laughs> but, uh, That's okay. Uh, you know, yeah, certainly the movie had a massive impact on me. I actually went to see Stan Bush uh, perform... At, um, quite recently, he's still you know he's still gigging, nice. and it was at what's it called? Whiskey A Go Go in Whiskey A Go yeah. yeah, and right. um, got to meet him. And he's a, he's genuine, like he he loves that. Um, obviously, to those who don't know, Stan Bush did the iconic song um, from the movie, The Touch, and and um, he really kind of lives that ethos of just being super positive, and all his songs are really positive. And he, he seemed
0: like that was genuinely who he was. So that was a special night. Oh my goodness, that's so cool! So, uh, Philip and I were at a uh, can we say premiere for the film Underwater here in Hollywood, and uh, he's a contributor on the on the show, and you're friends with the director William Eubank, and uh, it was a great night for me, and I was there because of my my friend uh, John Gallagher Jr., who is a good buddy of mine. We met um, doing a play. It was at my high school at Mount Pleasant in Wilmington, Delaware. And he didn't even go to our school, but we needed more people, and he was friends with some people in the cast and the art director, and uh, we just kind of hit it off. And he literally invited me to go to this thing. It was a month ago, and I had just gotten back from Delaware from the holidays to go see my family, and I'm in an Uber, and I'm coming back, and I from LAX, and I see a billboard for Underwater, and I was like, Oh my God, that movie that John Gallagher said that they shot years ago, and he was like, Oh my God, it is this crazy underwater movie called Underwater, and. He was telling me all about it. And I texted him. And I was like, hey, man, I saw a little billboard. Hope you had a good holidays. And he's like, what are you doing right now? And he, being a, such a cool friend, and wow, he really made my made my month. He was like, come on down to uh, the Alamo Draft House downtown uh, Los Angeles. And come check this out. I unfortunately missed most of the film because it was like really tight getting back and getting my turnaround. But uh, I went to the Q&A after. And it was uh, ran by Andy Machete, the director of the new, it, the new It films. And that was really a treat because I'd just gotten done watching the second one not too long ago and huge fan of Stephen King and, uh, and now of Andy. And just getting to see like, you know, insight into this, uh, this world, this, this new piece called Underwater. And then we went out after like the after party, we went out after that and John invited me along for some of the, the cool inner circle and I'm wearing a John Carpenter shirt. It's a it's a Thing shirt. It says, The Burger Thing. And it's like a burger with the Thing crab legs coming out of it from the my favorite John Carpenter film, The Thing. And there's this guy named Phil. Comes over and starts talking about John Carpenter and how much he loves him. And <laughs> we were fast friends uh, from that point on. And... Uh, so we got to just kind of hit it off on the John Carpenter note, and we're talking about world building with Transformers. And I, I know the term ECU is kind of new, but we use it a lot here. Um, now, the word ECU is being flung around. Having a, like a universe, I call it the Carpenterverse. Um, did a did a podcast called The Sons of Carpenter for a while, and we were just Carpenter nerds, a few of us, and just said, "Let's." Uh, we saw him live at the Palladium. Uh, two Halloweens ago for the 40th anniversary of of the first film, and we were just like, oh my God, Carpenter, what a guy. He writes the music that goes along with the pieces and the films, and he just creates these worlds, you know. So when we talk about writing and and fashioning worlds, um, tonight we'll be talking about The Fog, and uh, we're going to be watching The Fog in a little while, which is one of the ones we didn't get to on the the John Carpenter uh, series, Sons of Carpenter. Which you you got to check out, right? I did, and I was a huge fan of
1: of of, the, of that show, and I continue to be. And and you know when you brought up that. Um this was a project that you did, I was like, wow, this, this is amazing. Because I'm a huge podcast fan, and especially anything um, to do with film. And I really enjoy these kind of deep dives. And I'm a carpenter nut like you guys. But what I thought was really cool about it was I was still finding new um, insights. And the level of depth that you guys were going into, you know, focusing one episode on one film was, uh, yeah, I, I loved it. So pretty much I begged you to do The Fog. And what was funny was I remember that... Um, there was a huge poster for the fog in the Alamo draft on the Alamo draft house. Yeah. You pointed it out. It was like a, a foreign, I think it was French. that was this really striking, I icon- it was gigantic. Um, and, and it's only just open. So there was something in the stars, I think that night, but pretty much I, I've, I <laughs> when I heard that the fog was still available, um, I, you know, I've, I've, uh, Relentlessly. Yeah. Like, which ones you? haven't you done yet? Which one, which <laughs> ones have...
0: So I'm kind of cheating and stealing from the Sons of Carpenter uh, canon here because we're going to be doing a Carpenter film, but I just thought it was so fitting for our first uh, our first outing. And it's the 40th anniversary yeah, of its right, release. Right. This right. Weekend. Right. And yeah, you sort... brought that up. Yeah. It's uh, 1980. Um, what a good year for for horror. I mean, we have The Fog and also The Shining turned turned 40. The Shining is one of my favorites. And, Me too. Uh, you can see the posters around. Yeah, it's a great film. Um, And these films continue to inspire the next generation, which, you know, us. And there is a magic to these movies that really, if anything, has steamrolled and grown even more. And I'm so excited to get to The Fog uh, in a little bit here. We'll be watching it here in in my apartment at the Indiplex. And um, I feel weird calling it the Indiplex; You just call it the Plex. But then I'm calling keep this show casual. the Andy Plex. Yeah, keep it casual. You know? <laughs> it's like if you have a nickname, do you refer to yourself as the nickname. Anyway, it's fine. Um, but anyway, we're calling this show the Andyplex. Plex. Um, so I really wanted to use film as a launching point to explore creativity, but also hear people's journeys in, in this tumultuous, wild world of filmmaking and, and Hollywood. And uh, when I say Hollywood, I, I often don't always just mean specifically Hollywood, but, but filmmaking. So sometimes I have to say that double say it there because you studied originally um the bbc writers academy i did yeah that was kind of a a turning point
1: for me um i'd been a playwright um this was living in london um in kind of i guess the mid 2000s um i'd done one episode of a of a different television show that was about a premier league uh, football team or soccer team which my other big passion, but the BBC Writers Academy
0: was. You mean soccer, um, right? Right. Yes. <laughs> so I don't I know to what do to the say. obligatory it's like, American, yeah, like. yeah, exactly. Yeah, soccer, well, right? It's like,
1: which way, you know? Uh, Football slash soccer, uh, and it was about um, it was about a fictitious team uh, in the awesome. English Premier League, and so that was really fun because it kind of combined to my greatest loves, but. So I did an episode of that, and I was doing my, you know, I was writing plays, and then um, I guess I applied for it because th- this, it, I don't know what the these, what it's like now, but at the time, you had to be a professional writer to apply for this scheme, and there was there was like eight hundred professional writers applied. They select eight, um, wow. and then uh, you do three months of classroom-based training, and this goes from everything from your basic uh, eight. You know what? The, you know you've probably heard of the there's only eight stories. You know that are essentially um, recycled. Um. Cinderella, Faust, you know, um, the Odyssey, what, what have you, certain certain classic, obviously Transformers, the movie, um, (laughs) which is clearly better than, and actually is Faust, by
0: the way. Oh yeah, right.
1: Um, You know, a little bit of (laughs) (laughs) Shakespeare, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously Transformers, the movie is the greatest literature of all time, you know, and and is better than uh, anything that's ever been created. That's, we all know that, (laughs) but that anyway, so, you know, it would go from the kind of basic storytelling paradigms to, Super complex I remember hybrid multi-protagonism in um, you know in in television shows how to hit your seven different act breaks and balance your a b c d e f g h i j k you know stories that you would get in 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 television especially long running um, television narrative so it was essentially to give you this varied and deep toolbox for whatever um, challenges you were facing not just within the, the bbc um, but but you know uh, beyond so it, it kind of ran the gamut from feature film writing to um, to the specifics of, of, of uh, television shows and then I you know then basically you got rotated around some of their long running shows so it'd be a bit like working on um, you know you do an episode of Law and Order you do an episode of Grey's Anatomy you do an episode of you know etc specs right? um, no you actual the actual show. Oh my So you would be, you're dropped in the deep end. Basically, you got your training. Wow. You're paid to do the training as well, which is great. And um, this was all the brainchild of an amazing, amazing mentor of mine, John York, who was a a high exec at the BBC. And um, yeah, then you're dropped in at the deep end and it's sort of sink or swim.
0: That's that's amazing.
1: uh, So I did multiple episodes. You were paid to do this. Yes. So
0: it's like, you're just doing it now. Yeah, you're right. do,
1: you're basically you're doing it, and 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 the people there were people that um, went on to run the shows that came through that academy. That's um, not me, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know uh, other uh, yeah. So it, it's been it's been a successful initiative. What a what a way to cut your teeth, Phil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your teeth are sharp. They, I mean, yeah. There's no room to hide, and some people didn't. Um, I'm not, you know, my experience was uh, I would say. Positive, but mixed. I wouldn't say that I flourished in that particular environment. Um, however, you know, some people had stratospheric success. Some people, um, it wasn't for them or it just didn't work out. I think I did. Uh, I think I did. OK, I think I was sort of down the middle, but I reached a point where I'd done enough episodes and I decided to do something radical because I realized I was sort of I was I was um I was not. I don't want to say stuck because that's negative. But I was in a certain lane that I want, and, and I realized I can't really expand um, beyond this unless you hit I the do ceiling. something exactly yeah. in the UK. Because I wanted to do science fiction. Hmm. I wanted to do big. Not to say you can't do it there, but I want I wanted to do big commercial action science fiction. You know, my my, my taste was skewed more towards um, you know Hollywood. Um, the BBC is a very different. Um, you know it's a very different environment so i realized i needed to do something radical to change the direction of my career so you Korea. packed your bags and
0: came to la or well was there, a mid- there was middle a, there was
1: a there was a middle step i you know i was given advice by another a successful screenwriter where i was kind of saying to him look well how do i what do i do what do i do how do i kind of break because it seems from outside looking in it seems impenetrable you know how how what do you start to get into hollywood as a writer the advice i was given was um, write a spec script that is something that is your voice in in working on someone else's show it's difficult to express your voice it's fantastic training and you can do it um, but for me my voice didn't really it was just it was incongruent with that environment so mm-hmm. I was like what movie do I know I would be queuing up to see on a Friday night um, the opening weekend and so I wrote that my version of what that movie was which was a science fiction slash um kind of police procedural noirish um story that was kind of like a district nine meets training day so it was kind of combining two of my favorite genres and putting my own spin on it um, what was the name of that one phil that script was called assimilation protocol um which is uh you know is something that i'm still you know working on and i'm always kind of tweaking um, yeah but uh, as yet has not been produced but what it did do was it got me. It got me signed by um, CAA at the time. Wow. So I was then who got the script through my British agent. So that was and that opened the doors um, for me to develop. It, it didn't happen instantly. It took another year before, uh, ver- taking various meetings, learning the system, understanding the ecosystem out here, how it, how it really works, the, um, how the dots are connected between the studios and the producers, and and making all of those kind of relationships and obviously you have to keep writing. Mm-hmm. So it was a year or so later, and then I sold another project that was a pilot uh, that was also science fiction to STARS, and um, and then I got a visa, and then I was able to pack my bags. So there were a couple of other steps in between, but that was- Ah uh, yes, the old
0: visa right, requirement. Yes, which yes. was uh, a challenge, um, but yeah, it worked out. Um, well you're here now i am and i'm very glad that you are this is a heck of a a journey and a story and i'm really i'm blown away by uh hearing some of this stuff it's it's super cool and i like what you said like okay friday night what's the movie i want to see that's the one we want to write you Mm -hmm. know that's you go go for your heart go for Mm -hmm. your gut and uh i think that's a tremendous um experience and uh do you miss your family being over here? Do you, Very much so. Yeah, that's do one of You get lonely them. here in Hollywood. Um, it can be a lonely place. Yeah, I
1: think when I was such a packed place. Well, there's a story I'll I'll tell when we get to it. I don't want to jump jump the gun, but there is a story I'll tell a little bit about when we get could get to the fog that speaks to that. But I'll I'll save that for later. You know, I'm married now. I'm I've been married now for um, nearly nearly three years. Uh, my my wife is originally from L.A. Um, Darlene and um, I, I, you know, I'm close with. Um, her family and that's almost given me another sense, another family and another community. But I do very much miss my friends and family back home, especially because a lot of them are, uh, a a lot of um, my friends were also filmmakers, so it's, you know, meeting yourself and meeting some of my other um, close friends out here that are, you know, kind of in the business. I think it's important to have those relationships because you know, this is a tough. This is a tough business, and and it can beat you down, and it can feel very lonely if you're not with other people that are kind of facing the same battles. And you know, there's a good friend of mine, um, Michael Bim, who was a playwright like me in um, in in London. We kind of came up together, and now, and I bumped into him in of all places. It was totally random. I hadn't seen him in ten years. There's a central perk in, in on the Warner Brothers lot. You know, it's like just your, your your Starbucks or your Coffee Bean or whatever, and we he he's, he's just suddenly said Phil, and he looked completely different. I hadn't seen him in ages, and the, and he was working on a sh- on a show. Um, there was a Warner Brothers show, and um, now we we hang out all the time, and, and we're really almost helping each other navigate the, you know, the, the the complexities, strategizing, helping each other with resources, or you should meet this person, you should meet that person, you know, so it's great to have that those kind of alliances um, around you, especially when you know, there's, there's no agenda, you know, and you're, you're just looking out for each other.
0: Yeah, that's great. And this is really what I want to continue the, the tradition of Sons of Carpenter with with the Antiplex and just having a, a forum to kind of just chat about movies, what inspires you, and kind of come from that lens. Like you said, there is so much agenda and politics in this world, and I just really want to cut to the core of, like you said, what excites you, what what gets you going. It was Transformers that kind of woke you up. What's the thing you want to see Friday night? You know, what is it? You you really just, we, we landed on John Carpenter extremely quickly. Um, can't wait to get into the fog. But I, yeah, just having that, like you said, the ensemble of characters around you that you can riff about films and you can riff about the world and and the journey, so it's not so lonely because it can get really lonely. And sometimes you feel like you're just kind of beating your head on the on the wall. And um, it's it's important to look for the inspiration to kind of keep us going.
1: And yeah, well, I mean and how us.
0: how we met is yeah it certainly speaks to that because you sort of
1: finding like minded people that are interested in the same um, content, you know, and interested in the same interested in the same stuff i think it's no accident that we met uh you know in and around somewhere like the alamo draft house which i think is going to be a, a sort of magnet for cinephiles here in la what a cool are, place yeah what an, i'd
0: never that was I'd my never first time yeah. me too yeah
1: and my wife knew of it because she had been to the one in austin texas because her, her brother used to live down there and, and i've been to that one of, for yeah, south by southwest right and she, I remember her telling me about we had like a sing-along labyrinth, you know, and stuff like cool, stuff like that. So I think it's great that here in L.A. there is still those theaters like the New Beverly, like the Draft House. Oh, love the New Beverly. That are these havens for uh, cinephiles to, you know, um, obviously go and experience the, the movies that they, that they love, be they new or old,
0: um, but also meet, you know, kind of like-minded um, film buffs. Totally. And, you know, there's that lounge, too, which mm-hmm. takes it even to the next level. Uh, at the Alamo Drafthouse, there's this common area where, you know, we can play board games and they have movies you can, like, literally rent on DVD and check them out. And it's almost like you could, you know, not watch a movie and oh, just kind of hang out.
1: I, I, yeah, I'd love to. You know, sometimes I almost feel as well. Sometimes I enjoy talking about movies more than I actually, like, watching movies. You know, I love discussing movies and uh, analyzing them with, you know, and uh, yeah, so... That is as much a part of it for me. It's not just oh, I watch a movie and then it's something to do for two hours. To me, this is uh, you know this is somebody's art that has taken years to create. So like to see the to world just, building
0: and yeah, any, yeah, every detail, every
1: right. de- nothing's happened by accident, especially in a good film. So I love to really um, analyze it and and um, you know just
0: just a certain you know that's all part of it for me in a big way. That's so cool. So. To talk about being a film buff and film geek and riffing about it, you mentioned that you have a book in the works Yes, 80s movies, is that right? So
1: this is something that I've just written and I've just finished it. I'm just putting the final final touches on it. So it's going to take a while for this to hopefully come out. But I had an idea and it it was actually Will Eubank, my friend, who was the – who, you know, was partly – of how we met because he directed on underwater and we've worked together m- many times and we were having lunch one day and uh, you know, we I was saying, I want to just just do something different that I can kind of control because with um, as a screenwriter, your your um, area of control is obviously quite, you know, is, is particularly limited. So I wanted to kind of create some content that would be just me and it didn't have, you know, um, people to answer to and notes and all of the other things that come with um you know, be, being a screenwriter often as a, as a sort of hired person. So I wanted to really drive it. And he was saying, why don't you do something about, you know, the movies of the '80s? You have such a love of um, of that air of that uh, era, and um, and you know, hit on this. The concept is, and the title is currently "80 '80s Movies to See Before You're 80." Yes. Okay. Uh, so, and my criteria was to do something that. Rather than just do okay, let's discuss all the um, more obvious choices, et, Ghostbusters, or what have you. No, no, I, I love, don't get me wrong. I love all of those movies, but and you know, obviously Star Wars and what have you. But I sort of was like, well, I think they've kind of been discussed to death, and and what you know, I don't know that I can add a particular new insight about the, those th- things that haven't been said. For me, what I felt my niche would be is what was my personal connection to. Uh, These particular movies. So, you know, actually, when you look at how many movies have been released, eight in in that decade, eighty is actually quite a a small number. It sounds like a lot, but it's actually quite. It was actually quite hard to whittle it down, and and that was what it came down to for me. Was what what is how did this affect my life? Um, What is a story I can tell about this movie? Um, Because I look at it from an interesting angle. Growing up in the in the eighties, I grew up in essentially a small Um, village not unlike um, the fog because it was a seaside town which you know we'll get to but it was kind of similar to that type of community quite a small um, suburban village basically in the north of in the north of England um, a a sort of seaside small town and um, kind of you know kind of rural and I'm growing up watching these movies on a black and white portable television and, you know, I'm an only child, so, I'm, you know, I have plenty of time on my hands to watch movies how. And so it was sort of about how th- th- this this black and white portable TV set became this portal to another world for me, you know, from what my surroundings were and um, uh, just a world of imagination. So I was I'm analyzing it from the point of view of what were my memories experiencing it in that context as a child in that in that period. Um, or some of these films were discovered a bit later. Um, and then how do I feel about it now? How have they stood the test of time or not? Um, were you, I, I, and in some cases, now actually working in, um, in Hollywood, in the film industry, in some cases there are personal connections to the people that were involved with some of those movies. So things have come full circle. So it's kind of a then and now uh, look at the 80 films that um, had the biggest impact on my life personally or artistically. So, uh, you know, I'm just in the process of trying to, you know, my agent is just about to send it out to publishers that they have in mind and, you know, but apparently the league time is about a year or so. So we'll right. see. Um, I should probably be promoting this when it's, when, and if it's actually coming out, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, we'll do another episode. Yeah, Hopefully that would year. be cool. That'd be great. Yeah. 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 Let's That'd be do great. it. Yeah.
0: I mean, I just, I really wanted to hit on it just cause, um, I think it kind of encapsulates, you know, you and I's meeting and, uh, are geeking out about John Carpenter. And, um, well, there's four you know. Carpenter movies
1: that I analyze in the book. And again, it was hard to not, again, to whittle that down. I yeah. wanted to do more, but I, again, I, my criteria was, even though I might love certain movies, if I didn't have a personal story to tell, um, need, anyone can just, you know write a review that that needed to be something and there's nothing wrong with that but in order to justify this book's existence how did it tie
0: into your life exactly Had to have some personal
1: um something sort of proprietary from me that no one else could replicate
0: that's awesome man i can't wait to to check it out that's so cool i feel like it's going to be a good insight into your psyche as well
1: i think so i mean it's it's pretty personal yeah yeah it's quite personal Um, and um, yeah I mean you know I'm a passionate guy and I I just love I love movies so much and you know and I I love uh, I love people you know and a lot of this is what was nice was about being able to sort of do shout outs to you know uh, people that were part of these stories that mm-hmm. i whether they're you know my parents or family or friends and in some cases friends that now uh, a next-door neighbor that i would you know uh we we would grow up together now i have no idea where this person is you know maybe one day they'll they'll read this you know they'll discover this book and uh reminisce fondly about you know the, uh, our you know childhood and what have you so it's been fun to um give shout outs to the people that may have, have had a positive influence on
0: your life and maybe don't even realize it you know that's so cool yeah that's amazing um was there anything more we wanted to talk about on your journey before we dive into the fog um i don't yeah i mean i'm ready man i'm,
1: I'm ready for the fog i'm happy to answer any more questions but uh yeah I, i'm ready to dive i'm in sure you know
0: your journey uh there's a lot more there was a lot more stepping stones along the way as, you know... As, you pretty much covered it. We got, we <laughs> got, got it We got it You got it. You were born. You met me. That's it. That's, That's basically it. it. That's, That's basically all you need. <laughs> now, uh, we, obviously, we can continue to talk about uh, life as a writer, and uh, I... Happy to. Yeah. I am so excited to have, to have you on the show, someone who's, um, A, I mean, just a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, as we met immediately, we had a whiskey together. And talking about John Carpenter and, and 80s movies. And there's a few that I haven't even seen that you've recommended for me as well. So you're pushing me, Phil, in the best kind of way. Blue Thunder. I'm going to check in with you on Blue Thunder. <laughs> I still haven't. I need to do it. Most uh, underrated action movie of the 80s, in my opinion. But we'll get anyway, we'll get to that. Blue Thunder. There it is. Uh, Roy Scheider, right? Absolutely, yeah. Amazing. What a, what a great actor he was. And uh, I, I can't wait to check that one out. I'll report back. Next time you're on the show, I promise I will have watched Blue Thunder. Fantastic. All right, well, um, why don't we watch The Fog, and we'll continue to talk, and if other anecdotes pop up, which they undoubtedly will, we will continue to, to touch on them. Uh, I'm so excited. I haven't seen The Fog in a while, and uh, I have not watched it here in my home theater, 180-inch screen, a surround sound. Uh, the last time I watched it was on a much, much smaller TV. It was color, I think, but... Uh, <laughs> so every movie for Phil was wow. black and white no, growing no need, up. No need to brag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, we did have a, a small black and white TV upstairs in my parents' room, and when the room was was tied up, uh, the main viewing room was tied up, that's where my brother and I uh, retreated to. So, um so anyway, you must have a particular love for black and white film. Not really. Or you're just like, oh well, everything's black and white, so. It's this just... was, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, look, like I, I can reminisce about it fondly, but let's face it, that that's a terrible way to uh, watch movies. And you know, we did get a color TV. I'm not trying to, you know, paint out this incredibly bleak, uh, uh, you know, uh, existence. You grew, it grew up was in just... a trash can. And somebody <laughs> yeah. just
0: chucked a, a black and white portable TV. No, I had a wonderful,
1: I had a wonderful uh, childhood. It was just, you know, one point. This, this was that was my access point. You know.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's a cool story. Um, that's awesome. All right, without further ado, we will be watching John Carpenter's 1980 classic, The Fog. And you're wearing a fog shirt, I see, Antonio Bay. 1879 to 1979, that's great. I had to do it. It's a little on the nose, but I had to do it. Oh, I love on the nose. I should call the show on the nose. <laughs> Just get to it, man. All right, without further ado, we'll be watching The Fog. Be back soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, Phil and I have just watched The Fog, the 1980 classic from John Carpenter. And uh, I got to say, this was my first time watching it on on the home big screen here. Home big screen. And uh, man, it blew me away. It had been a few years since I'd seen it. And... uh, I feel like it was the first time for me right now almost um, I you know I knew the, I knew the big strokes and all that but a lot of the the nuances and the details really emerged today um, for me in a new way and it's uh, oh my god it was so good all right well we're back Phil um, You've seen this, I think, a lot more than I have. Uh, yeah, it's one of my favorites. You said you had a little anecdote to share. Well, I, I had an interesting story. It's kind of a
1: spooky story that I would, I, I wanted to just tell about the first time I actually saw the fog. So now I've been a carpenter nut for a long time, but I, I didn't get as hardcore into his stuff uh, until I moved to L.A. So for some reason, the fog had kind of passed me passed me by this so this is going back to when I first moved to LA so picture the scene so and at this point you you know you talked, we talked a little we talked a little bit earlier about can I move in here and you know at the time I was um I was living on, on my own in an apartment that uh, a good friend had kindly rented out to me this was in Los Feliz and it was in a kind of shabby chic uh old apartment building wooden fences and kind of a little you know sort of run down but charming and this happened to be a uh, an atypically windy, stormy night. So I'm sitting down to watch the fog. I'm alone, homesick. Um, I'd just been through kind of a painful breakup. Uh, I, I was in, I was in a bit of a vulnerable state. And meanwhile, there's this, this storm is building and building, and it's as I said, it's kind of unusual in LA. And the wooden fences are starting to rattle. So it's like this weirdly atmospheric night so i'm sitting down to watch the movie alone and it begins with this scene where uh, uh mr mr macon played by john houseman tells there's a kind of prologue where he tell he sort of sets the stage for the film and he tells this story about how 100 years ago to this day april 21st etc cetera, etc cetera, and he outlines that 100 years ago there was this uh tragedy which is the uh what were the townsfolk intentionally um shipwrecked a a, a, what was an approaching uh, group of of lepers who were going to settle and they 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 lured them in and they with fires and they let them they intentionally wrecked the ship and then 100 years to this day april 21st they're coming back in the fog etc right now so imagine this when he's saying that the date that i was watching the film i swear to you was april 21st i was like whoa oh my god (laughs) whoa that is weird so so i had such it really added so i'll never forget that and obviously i loved the movie and it really added to the kind of the uh just the atmospherics of it the storm brewing outside and i happened to be watching it by total coincidence on the 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 this critical date which the whole
0: story revolves around so i just wanted to mention that man that's incredible you know it's a little bit of a Kind of a rainy day today here in LA. Um, it's drizzling, and it's a little cold, and it's definitely overcast. And I feel like it was the perfect day to watch the film. I was
1: thinking the same thing on my drive over here. It was kind of gloomy, it was kind of yeah. again atypical. Atypical. This isn't, yeah. this isn't a typical LA day. And I don't know. There's something. There's something about this movie, man. You know. Um, yeah, it's
0: powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're a lot more familiar with it with, with, than I am, but um, I really just found it. So amazing. And you know, I well the first time I saw it, it was actually uh again, my buddy John Gallagher. I have him to thank for meeting you. Um we rented it back in Delaware and it was a few of us that got together to watch it and we kinda we probably weren't in the right mindset for this particular one, but we were really big into Halloween and the thing and we were like, Let's get another John Carpenter in and um we kinda talked over it and I think we didn't do it we didn't really do it justice. And I remember thinking, there's no real main character. And kind of not liking that originally, I was like 17 or so, um, and just kind of feeling like it was all over the place, but now I truly see that it is about a town. You know, the town really is the lead. It's you know, like- you have Jamie Lee Curtis back, and you're like, oh, okay, she's the lead. No, she's not. You know, you have Tom Atkins, he's the lead. No, there's no real lead. You have Adrian Barbeau, the... Um, the DJ, uh, which really narrates the whole piece is kind of the Greek chorus of like seeing all the, the town mm-hmm. and, you know, being represented and people are tuning in on the radio and that becomes such a big part of it, where uh, she's later able to kind of like get people to go to a certain spot uh, via the radio. So, I mean, it really showcases this town. And as, as the movie started, you were like, oh, I love this intro. Just, you know, you see the, the grocery store and the, the convenience store and the streets and the, the DJ and the coast and, you know, we start on the coast and um, really get a sense of a kind of a macro look at this town. And I really think that really is the main character. It's
1: one of the, the reasons why, again, I think this resonates with me and I, men- I mentioned earlier that... I, I grew up in a town that's a, a little bit like this in the sense that it's a, a coastal town. It's a small community. I also went to university in a small town in Wales, um, which was very close to this, like, you know, with, down to the harbor and the marinas and the um, and the boats and just, the you know, the fishermen and the sense of this small town life. But again, like, you know, when I watched it, I was thinking the same thing, but I've been watching a lot of Carpenter recently which I pretty much always am now, but it really reminded me of how expertly he uses an ensemble. Mm-hmm. You know, um, The Thing is the same. Obviously, McCready is, is your is your main focus in that film. But again, without that, if Kurt Russell wasn't necessarily cast in that role, if you didn't have that kind of movie star in that role, that's it's pretty much an ensemble piece. Same with um, Prince of Darkness, you know. Uh, and e- even in the films which do have a clear protagonist, Big Trouble and, and Escape, um, there's, he's just so good at working with an, a big ensemble cast. But I think this this one and probably Prince of Darkness, it, it, yeah, there there really isn't a, a clear protagonist. But I, I love that. I yeah. love that it. It, it just it, and and having come from a small town like that, a small kind of seaport town, it so expertly captures that that the rhythm. The, it's like a slower pace of life, and people kind of know each other, and the, it just really expertly captures. Um, that feeling,
0: in my opinion. Totally, I, and you nailed it. I mean, yeah. And since uh, John and I have revisited it, and we were like in love with this movie now. And um, again, it's not one of the ones I've revisited the most out of the Carpenter canon, but um, so I'm a little newer to it. But I, I can't agree more. And the slow burn of it is really powerful. And I found myself just being hypnotized by it. And it's like it's like a fog bank. It's coming at you. Right. It's coming at you. You see it coming, but... And it ultimately envelops you. Yeah it, yeah. envelops you. yeah, it envelops you. And then by yeah. the end, it's like coming in through the cracks in yeah. the walls and under the doors. And the, the fog effect in the film uh, between, like, the glowing one and then the, the main kind of practical ones they were using are, are stunning. Yeah, and but- it's so moody and so creepy. And the way it just kind of comes into the streets. And there's almost like a chase sequence, too, where it's like they're you know they're in the car and uh, with Tom Atkins and... Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, and yeah, and what it represents too, I think, is really powerful and scary. In that, you know, it's like sins of the father, right? Like there was a hundred years ago, they they were like, we want the gold from this leper colony. Let's, let's shipwreck them, take their gold, and use their gold to, and basically steal their spot. You know,
1: yeah, very much a sins of the past uh, story, which is actually a very American story when you think about. And, and I believe there was actually a, um, the, the story that it was based on loosely or one of the components that it was based on dealt with um, Native American um, genocide. That, that that was a true story that took place and they made a film about it. So there's something really, whether this is intentional or not, this has not, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into any kind of politicize this film because it's it's got nothing to do with it. But there is something iconically and classically American about the story that is sort of uh, uh, something beautiful built on a kind of nefarious deed. You know, I mean, you can you can dial into that frequency if you want to. You totally don't need to. But to me, there's something actually quite um, quite clever about that. Um, and, And I think that speaks to the the timelessness of this this film.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it is actually super important. And, um, you know, I mean, I think in 100 years, we might look back at this particular point in American history and say, man, you know, if we don't kind of learn from the past, if we don't, you know, if we don't honor it, I think if there's that kind of collective amnesia and, you know, ghost stories are are, are about this, you know, um, and we talked about The Shining, also 1980s, kinda released the same year. And, Obviously, the, the the analysis there about the genocide of the American Indians and the Holocaust references, again, like the past kind of repeating itself. There's a debt to be paid. There's a debt to yeah. be paid. Um, and it's scary because the next generation, you know, technically their hands are clean, but we're still living mm-hmm. on the foundations that were before us. Right. So like, what does our country stand for? What do, You know, and especially in America, we like to think, it's about freedom. It's about, you know, representing all all nationalities and creeds. And, you know, anybody can, the American dream is anybody can rise up. Um, And it's scary to think that there are things echoing that are evil and and crappy, and there's plenty of them in in history. So I think the the idea is that this is kind of like a nice Aesop's fable, almost of like a cautionary tale, if you were, you know, um, obviously speaks in metaphor, you know, it's about ghosts, but uh it's powerful stuff, you know, and I really think that they captivated it in a super really powerful way in this movie and it's like who's really the villain? Is it these these creepy leper ghost zombies or is it you know, I think the true villain is the mistakes of the past and not kind of honoring them you know
1: totally and there's that's what that's another reason why I think there's a dimensionality to the villains here because you kind of get it like you get why they're. Um, seeking revenge, they have been so screwed over by the ancestors in this town that they really do have a case um, which makes it more more complex and more interesting, like yeah. this character of Blake who we don 't totally know, but we hear about through. Um, the diary mm-hmm. um, that has a whole fascinating backstory that's complex and, and tragic. And he was like a rich leper, I believe, right. Like in, right. or something, And he was trying to help his people that were afflicted by this, um, you know, terrible disease. And you, but you sort of also understand why the townspeople would, would prevent it. So it's like, it's just real. It It's not, it's not a black and white. It feels very textured as, as a, as a sort of the mythos of the backstory that this whole thing is um, is built on is is interesting and is complex. You could do a movie about the backstory. You could, actually you could do an amazing prequel. You know right. um, about about the this event that took place hundred years ago, and it could be a fascinating story about um, the origins of America, about um, religion, about um, morality, um, about you know choices made in. Um, uh, you know who's important to you, the townspeople or the you know and as a ma- as a religious man that's also really interesting because it was a it, it, the father Malone and, and his his grandfather would have been a priest. that's the ultimate sort of unchristian act to not save lepers. That's the you know if you're yeah. asking what would Jesus do it wouldn't be wreck a bunch of lepers on you know in the sea so They'd he, take their gold
0: and turn it into a cross right
1: so he, yeah. so there's something fascinatingly irreligious about this act as right. well especially for a man of the cloth so I mean that that the fact that we can have those kind of conversations about um, you know what what might at surface level seem like a, you know a fairly straightforward um, horror ghost story. It's like the level of thought and texture and dimensionality that's gone into every you know, aspect of this film. This is one of
0: the reasons why I love it so much. Ah, it's so good. I, I can't agree more. And, you know, Carpenter is just, you know, we're talking about the Carpenter verse and, uh, it's there you know like you said you you could you could rewind 100 years you could you know it's like what's going on now what's going on before and you could take that snapshot and it's so interesting and there's so much richness here in this world and i just uh yeah honestly this viewing right now i i'm I'm humbled and blown away by it i i i, I try to rank them but it's impossible and they all have different angles and different approaches uh, but i think ultimately what gives them So much lasting power, what gives them the legs is just what you said is, you know, it's just the ability to showcase a different angle besides, okay, it's a, it's a ghost story about whatever a town, but yeah, we really have to like, guys, we gotta be, we gotta be careful about what we do and what we remember and not remember, you know? Because it's like, Hugh controls the present, controls the past kind of thing, right? Right. Sort of is written by uh, the victors. and certain, Right. Um,
1: inconvenient facts sort of get scrubbed away. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, uh, not to wax too lyrical, but, you know, waves on a beach, right? Like some, yeah. Certain things are, 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 you know, lap as they lap against the shore, certain things are kind of eroded. Um, so, I, again, whether all of this was conscious or not, it just speaks to his genius as a storyteller in the way you can take all of these elements um, and have them coalesce so beautifully i think that's why 40 years on literally to the uh, to the weekend of its release th- this film endures wow we're um, down to the weekend are we phil yep it was this weekend wow yeah. february it was february 8th 1980 wow. when the movie came out so again there's something in the stars with this one like things just Kind of circle A around. little bit of there's fog just
0: wafted through the shot. There's someone at the, at someone at the door. Uh. Oh, crap. <laughs> very by the way when
1: my wife uh come one time like she did this knock on the door and she had her hands full with shopping or something and and now i and i said that was a fog knock that was a, you scared <laughs> you scared the hell out <laughs> of me so for now every time she comes home she will intentionally do the, the, the sort of the the fog knock as we call oh it. she sounds great how did you yeah. how'd you find uh how'd you find your wife uh we uh we we actually met at a, a bar downtown called um uh perch perch like rooftop yeah there, and actually yeah. we started talking about movies and uh, I asked her what her favorite movie was and she said it was uh The Princess Bride, so I knew straight away she had good taste in movies if not in men. Uh judging <laughs> by her interest in me. So uh that anyway, that's another that's another story for another day. Yeah. That's a whole um, other episode. So, um but another another thing that I think speaks to why this film endures not just the story, the the you know, the backstory, the mythos, but the um just the sheer filmmaking craft on display, like we were saying, with the from the, from the credit sequence, you know, John Carpenter has such an acute sense of rhythm, and I was looking at the um, for the for the purposes of this, I watched the two thousand five remake of The Fog, which has a credit sequence over what's supposed to be a kind of scary prologue of people in the. Um, in the in the in this, I think it's supposed to be the past, and you kind of see these people, and someone gets jumped. Up. But credits are like appearing during this, what is supposed to be scary action, and it was just another example of how. Well, whereas John Carpenter parses it out so carefully, the cadence, you know, yeah, the yeah the yeah the, the 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 film language of it exactly, you know, and and again, Prince of Darkness has a really epic, I think, a nine minute. Um, credit sequence but little things like that they're dialing the audience into the experience that you're going to have and if you feel like you're in good hands with someone who understands rhythm pacing tone atmosphere even down to the credit sequence that's that's why he's a master you know and that credit sequence as you were saying you know it, it establishes the town the geography the fact that also um there's nothing else around for quite some time there's big um you know rural areas of forestry and and lots of wide open space to be exploited by this supernatural force that that is the for all of these things they're not none of them are happening um by accident or because it's just a, a pretty shot you know this is all part of building this um incredible um tapestry you know that he is that he's weaving um so
0: i mean it's just so well directed it really really is is. oh man well said phil yeah we have uh dean cundy back on uh back on the camera he's uh obviously you know famous for working with uh, carpenter as well as spielberg and a bunch of other awesome people he's i think one of the best uh living dps that we have and uh, his work really shines here and you know, they did some of the uh, the glide cam that, you know, made famous by Halloween in the beginning, and we get to see some of that, and just, yeah, uh, showcasing the town from a kind of a macro lens, and then setting the stage, and then we see the forces of evil kind of impinge, um, although the forces of evil are kind of not so evil when you think about it. They're trying to right the wrong... Um, yeah, man. I mean, what a moody masterpiece. Um, it's it's great. <laughs> I really just feel like I watched it for the first time, even though I, I knew all the broad strokes. But uh, it really it really rocked my socks this time, Phil. I think, and having you here has been a a real treat. Um, if you had to rank it, Oof. where would it fit? You know, for you
1: it'd be right up there for me. Um, I like you, my my if i had to rank my top 3 carpenters and I, for some reason i've been thinking about this recently um my favorite's always been escape from new york as my number 1 um i also love starman and 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 they live but it it could be they're they're almost into interchangeable this if this wasn't in my top three it's it's right it's literally knocking at the door with a hook begging (laughs) to get in as scary uh you know uh water vapor emerges from underneath the crack of the door so um it's right up there i it's one of my favorite horror movies and and although i will concede that i wouldn't say it's that scary like certainly for a modern audience it almost might feel almost it feels almost genteel to a modern modern audience and the weird thing about this movie um is that i actually find it comforting to watch at the same time as it being kind of scary i think because of the the small town feel but the biggest thing that i wanted to say about why i think this movie is genius is you could i could watch this movie if there was no horror element that's how good the characters are. That's how good the ensemble cast is, and that's something that I think gets forgotten in horror because uh, that's what separates a good horror film from, um, you know, from from a bad one, or what separates a great one uh, from merely a competent, you know, um, series of, of of jump scares.
0: It's not just relying on the the visceral shocker all.
1: Well, live. look at the relationship with. Um, with Nick Castle, uh, the character Nick Castle, yeah. not the not the real guy, which is a whole other conversation, but the, the Tom Atkins character, Nick, and Jamie Lee Curtis's character, right? First of all, how cool and progressive is it that um, she is a sexually confident, sexually empowered young woman um, and is not punished for... There's no judgment made whatsoever about the fact that they fall into bed straight away. And in fact, you, lo- I love their relationship. It's a yeah. complex, interesting... Um, it has this great moment of subversion where it seems like oh, it's a hitch, you know, it's an older dude picking up a younger girl uh, in a dock, you know, you know, hitchhiking. That it's playing with the already. Are you
0: weird? Right. Good. But, yeah. Yeah.
1: It's like great how sophisticated this was shot in 1979 you know and how sophisticated it is in 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 it with, with that that is such an interesting relationship if it was just about their relationship it'd be very entertaining likewise um all the other uh, members of of the ensemble are there's even a little moment in the credit sequence where the guy who's the grocery clerk you know is sweeping and and then the the the, the, the sort of there's the poltergeist kind of thing comes in and but there's a little choice where he s- takes some orange juice um, from the uh, you know from the racks in the store, drinks it, uh, and puts it back. And it's just and now he's a character, you yeah. know. Now he's making a questionable moral choice. He's stealing like it's the almost, people uh... stole the gold, right? Oh right. Again, it's I mean, a, like so a t- cool. it's a tiny detail. By the way, I love that mirroring actor. the main,
0: you know, the main crux
1: uh, yeah and whether even if it, it it happened to be perfectly on point thematically but even if it wasn't now that isn't just a guy sweeping and something scary happens and the bottles get rattling the, he's made a choice the guy has no lines of, of dialogue yeah. but the character has made a choice and, and it's those kinds of textural details that really elevate flesh the world out so well it, yeah and now we we're invested this feel they feel like real people and not ciphers to be to just to be butchered every 12 minutes you know, in accordance with a horror movie rhythm. Is so, it the twelve-minute rule? I, I mean, I'm just saying, Like, I'm basing that on like, like my you no training. The, the Joel Sil. There was a Joel. Sil- there was sort of a famous kind of Joel Silver, um, I believe, uh, kind of paradigm that he had. where in his action movies, there had to be like a you know a kind of jolt of adrenaline every twelve, every 12 minutes. Every minutes. So I would, you know, I'm just kind of right. around a Michael Bay that. movie. It's every twelve seconds. Right. <laughs> don't want to lose them. Don't right. want to lose
0: them. Modern audiences. Right. Oh, man, that's super well said. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so you talked about Nick Castle being the name of the Tom Atkins character, Nick Castle being uh, the the actor who who played the original Michael Myers, and he's also in the Coupe de Ville's band with John Carpenter, also referenced on yes. uh, the ship, the, uh, what's the, the Seagrass? The Seagrass, yeah. Yeah, the first vessel to kind of get fogged um, in the beginning of the piece.
1: Um, yeah, Stevie Wayne mentions... Uh, the Coupe de Villes, I think, in, on the radio or something, doesn't she? And, yeah. And so there's a little nod. It's it's another reason that why I think again I like the... You know, I've heard that working on John Carpenter's films, he creates this. He, or in those days, certainly, he created a, a sort of familial feeling. And uh, it, there's something I think I like about watching this movie from that point of view because it kind of feels like hanging out with Carpenter and his with homies. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's like with Deborah Hill and Adrian Barber. And, oh, you and, spotted Deborah name, Hill, right? Deborah Hill has a little, uh, I believe. I, I spotted her um, at the the candlelit kind of vigil for the c- ceremonial unveiling of the um, statue. I think you can kind of glimpse a young right. Deborah Hill who we miss so much and and. And it's kind of the unsung
0: hero in a lot of ways for a lot of John Carpenter's. Yeah, she left us work. too early, but yeah, I mean, she was the pro- the producing might behind uh, John for a long and time, co writer, uh, co writer of this yeah. uh, this movie, um, and uh, yeah, dear, dearly missed
1: presence in in you know in, in film and our in our uh, you know in our in our business, and she but she leaves an extraordinary legacy, and 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 yeah, there's also. Um, one of the characters is called Dan O'Bannon. That right. is never actually named. I think I don't know if they say his full name, but he's credited as uh, the the guy who's the weatherman, played by Charles Cyphers, uh, is actually his full name is Dan O'Bannon. So it's a nod to who's the uh, police chief in Halloween, and in uh, he's also in escape from New York All right. in, the, in the police station as well. Yeah. So it has that rep company feel, and the, and the fact that some of these people are named. After um, you know, deal, like people that he clearly loves, just it, there's just yeah. something warm and fuzzy about that.
0: It is that I that I love, it's and a reward for you know repeat viewing and people that get into the yeah. Carpenterverse. Um, we I, call I, Dean Dean Cundy as Dean Dean Cundy right. of John Carpenter High, <laughs> because you know his name's Dean and he's also the Dean. Um, he's amazing. Tommy Lee Wallace as editor and production design went on two years later to direct uh, Halloween three. Um, scored by John Carpenter, starring Tom Atkins. So there's definitely this legacy of continuation, and they all kind of spin off of each other. I wanted so to give a shout-out to uh,
1: Paul Brave, Mrs. Cobritz, as well, who was also named after one of... Um, John Carpenter's uh, collaborators who produced uh, one of his early films and, and also produced Christine. I believe his name is Richard Kobritz. But I'm, I'm team Kobritz. I'm all about Mrs. Kobritz. <laughs> Mrs.
0: Kobritz! Mrs. Kobritz! I feel poor... so bad for her. She was so brave. Oh, she was so brave and she saves the kid and then gets just cut down. Now, to talk about the kind of comparing it to a modern um, horror, uh, yes. I actually read that they did a, a large amount of reshoots on it particularly on some of the, the action sequence, or the, you know, the, the monster sequences with the ghosts and uh, a lot That's of the right. deaths. And apparently they thought the modern vernacular was gorier and was nastier. That's right. Um, I, I don't, you know, that was 40 years ago. It definitely is pretty gruesome and intense. But if anything, it reminds me a lot of how Michael Myers operates, you know, the way they film it and this kind of creepy cadence of the slow rhythmic instead of the, you know, just bursting out. There are there are a couple pop out moments, but it is this kind of slow draw, and the way they photograph the the ghosts kind of as a silhouette, and then even some shots uh, of the hooks coming in and knives coming in. There was one shot where the the knife impales the guy very much like in uh, Halloween, where Michael Myers sticks the guy to the wall. So if anything, I really didn't notice that it felt like they were kind of pandering more to the modern like more viscera. It still has this kind of classical edge for me i mean yeah the, those reshoots which are often um talked about
1: are, are seamlessly integrated yeah. um but yeah my understanding is that you know this was around the time when um, david Cronenberg's scanners had kind of changed the game in the horror space and you know obviously that has a huge gore um component and the the feeling Best was that ho- this was Best exploding an unbelievable sure. i mean an, an unbelievable amazing film that i would lo- also love to discuss it's one that i talk about in the in the book Great. um but uh yeah i think the feeling was that this was it, it was a little bit soft and a little um yeah just just it didn't have the punch it didn't have the scare so they, they you know they went back and they inserted a lot of those secrets and they they spent another um, it was a low budget film. I believe it was nine hundred thousand was the budget, and then it ended up being one point one. Um, but those differences were were huge and turned it into a big hit. But you would, ne- if you didn't know, if you weren't like a carpenter, ophile like uh, like us, and were were really into all of that backstory, you would never know that massive amounts of this film were were It Doesn't feel it, it at all. It's it's perfect. Seamless. Yeah, absolutely yeah. seamless. And uh, again, you know, for me, those shots, that's fine. Those, but I, I, like. I, I could take them or leave them. You know, for me, the just the characters, the story, totally. the atmosphere—that's um, what makes it work. I'm not—I don't need to see a, a, a you know, a, a, a hook puncturing flesh to it doesn't. You know, just yeah. sort of doesn't do anything for me as a as a as a viewer. But I understood like why those choices were, uh, you know, were made. I think it's, it, you know, those those are somewhat easier things to do than create a scary mythology true to build suspense uh, and to have the most importantly none of that none of that matters unless you have characters
0: that you're totally. invested in if there's no peril if, you know if you don't care you're not invested as an audience member into these characters then gore is not gonna and how many how many like just gore fest films are we witness to that just don't have what you just mentioned you know they don't have that the texture of the characters and the world and the mythology um i i was i was on edge uh, during it and I, it you you mentioned kind of having that sleepy town hypnotic element to it, and I I felt so when the movie when the movie ended, I was almost like whoa! I was in a stupor, yeah. you know. And it, the, the ability for a film to have that ability, multiple viewings in, uh, is is so powerful.
1: It's true. It does it does sort of sweep you up in, and that's the that's his skill of um, yeah the the rhythm and the pacing. Um, that he creates. He knows just how to pass it out, when to build, you know, when to pull back. and But ultimately, most of his films seem to have that, that, they have that rhythm where they just just sweep you up. And by the third act, you're
0: just on the edge of your, you know, you're on the edge of your seat, biting your nails. And your sanity. Yeah. <laughs> but in the best kind of way. And, you know, having that sense of rhythm translates well into his, his scoring. you know, Oh my gosh. I mean, they, go one, they go hand in hand and it just... Those moody scores of his are just so much fun, and the use of synth, and we talk about that on The Sons of Carpenter, but it's it's often, you know, very simple in a lot of ways, but that I don't want to take anything away from calling it simple because it's just so effective. It The way the tone mirrors the music, and the music mirrors the tone and the pacing, is just, like you said, it just sweeps you away. Well, it's another thing
1: that... Uh, Not only, obviously, his scores are always, um, you know, you can't, you cannot separate them from the film. They're so, they are, they are such a part of, you can't imagine, um, or, you know, when when you remember Carpenter's films, you can't can't separate the two. You can't separate sound and, and image. They're so, they're so... Um, fused together like it's just such an essential part of a John Carpenter movie going experience but another thing that I thought added to the timelessness speaking of the music and another thing that I think the, where the remake went astray um, is the jazz the fact that it's jazz which was a production choice made because jazz is cheaper for royalties than rock mm. and roll which is more John Carpenter's taste but as a result it's it's timeless this could be at any point in any time you know and and it's it, uh, again, with that languid, um, dreamy—you know—there's uh, something about jazz that it is kind of fog-like, where it's mm. it's amorphous, it's it's sort of nebulous. Um, it isn't, um, you know, clear uh, melody. It's there's almost something intangible about it. So even even that choice, whether it was ended, which was somewhat um, as a as a monetary decision, ends up infusing the atmosphere of the film really beautifully as well. Um, whereas the remake has a sort of nickelback light, uh, alt rock crassness to it that that just um, Ugh, you're making me clashes. want to never watch it. Yeah, I wouldn't um I have know, not watched it. I don't it. wanna rag on, on any on any movie. I genuinely don't because every mo- any movie getting made is a minor miracle. It is. But but and and you know, I, I wouldn't you know, and, and I know that from personal experience, but if you you know, it it's watching the remake was um an an illustration as to what choices worked on the original, and 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 why? So it was kind of
0: interesting from that um, from that standpoint. Wow, that's a that's a deep cut there, Phil, with the jazz man. Yeah, well, you know that's why I'm here. Let me see, let me see your uh, John Carpenter synth hands. Let me see. Yes. All right. For those of you listening, you, I just did something I can't keyboard. see it, but you know it happened. <laughs> that was impressive.
1: Um, I'm especially impressed because I have no musical talent whatsoever. So, um, yeah, I felt the fact it. that he, yeah, you, you probably felt that from my I, air, I from my air keyboards, right. it was.
0: No, I felt I felt your keys. Oh, okay. I felt well, the tickling yeah. the ivories there.
1: Um, but uh, yeah, he's uh, to be. It's almost greedy how how uh, how much of a genius he is to be such a talented, you know, composer, musician, right. and writer and producer and director and now he's a rock star and now he's a rock star yeah, yeah we, you know we saw him plus up. years old
0: i know he's 71 i think yeah i mean he's like yeah he's now man. he gets to be this like rock god um and have you seen him live phil i have i have were you um, at that same show i'm not sure if we were at
1: the same show because i think Holland. mine was 2017 oh, okay it was whenever the dodgers were playing the the um Astros, because I remember coming home from the concert and watching one of the games in that World Series. I yeah, that was the that, year before. I
0: think that was 2017. Um, yeah, we were Halloween. all like, oh, he's going to come back uh, for 2019, and I just thought it was going to happen. Um, you know, it, it looks like he sold the place out the year before. I just figured he was coming back, but um, it didn't happen last year. But he is scoring the newest Halloween film, Amazing and and Can't that wait. I Halloween loved kills. the last re- I me loved too. the last
1: Halloween movie and that was again was an example for me of when horror is at its zenith is when it's treated like it's not horror it's treated like it's um, any kind of um, more more even a prestige film the level the quality of direction in that film the quality of the shot selection um, again the fact that the characters were in, were interesting and dimensional and subversive choices were being made and uh it felt very current with the whole sort of serial podcast type uh component that they had to it but you know if if you could remove the horror and be entertained watching it that's when you know you've really got something uh, spectacular that film was so well directed and obviously jamie lee curtis was just crushing
0: yeah and they they did something with the character and like you said they made choices they They showed her PTSD and her pain. And, you know, you strip away all the Michael Myers and all the, you know, all that, all those elements. It's still about a woman who, what are the ramifications of living with this for so long? And and again, like, she remembered the past. Like in The Fog. She she remembers 40 years ago where everyone else has forgotten. And now Mm. she's just this kooky old lady that's Mm. pulled herself in where she is, that horror is still very much alive for her. And seeing how that affects a human being. You know, and, and seeing her grapple with that kind of, you know, it's almost like Ahab with, with Moby Dick, you know, that kind of weird kinship of having that. Um, I just thought they explored those elements so well. And like you said, you strip away all the horror components, and it's still just such a good story about a, a real-feeling character Yeah, breathe to life so well by Jamie Lee. That's one of my favorites. I think... I of, think that one got bumped up to like my second or third favorite Halloween movie. Of recent
1: times, I think it's one of the best uh, best horror films that's, that's been made. Um, the most sophisticated. Um, it Follows was another one for me. I love I It Follows. had so that good. kind of cl- uh, level of filmmaking craft and class uh, and, and just so well marshaled, so well directed. Um, and and again that had a fantastic score you know horror there's the, the, when you think of most of the the old the real all-time horror uh, classics you know you it's the score is is uh, is always something you remember too even going back to psycho which of course has a janet lee connection right. to the film and 20 years after psycho um, 60 to 80 yeah janet lee's great um you know the shining and uh, the thing and and you know that all of the all the great horror films have a fantastic score you know and it's 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 a huge part of your arsenal um, you know your your weaponry as a you know as, as a horror film as a horror film maker get that score right and and it's it's another 20 30% you know of your final of your final product so
0: um, yeah, it's like you said you can't in your mind you cannot separate the yeah. two. You know, that's part of the experience. Um, wow. Oh man. Anything else you wanna uh add about the the fog? There were a few things that I found interesting,
1: um, you know, from my from research that that, you know, a lot of your fans or your listeners you know what I was trying to do was trying to find like because you guys are so you, most people already know so much so I was trying to sort of do a bit of research as to what might might you know what might existing big carpenter fans or big fans of this film not know about so I was kind of interested in uh, there was a film that was a uh, apparently an influence that's called uh the trollenberg terror have you heard of this film I have. AKA, I was just watching a, a, uh, The Crawling Eye is yeah. the American title. Was it 58 or something 58, like that? 58, absolutely, yeah. spot on. Um, so I was checking that out, and it was really interesting. I, I, I think your listeners might find it interesting because it's also available for free right now on Amazon Prime under the title The Trollenberg Terror. But there are literally certain shots were basically that story is um, – you know, it's kind of funny because it's uh, one of those – 50s films where it's British and everyone's like, well, we better go and deal with this now. Would you like a cigarette? You know, <laughs> cigarette, <laughs> cigarette, and <laughs> you know, and, and it's very much of that uh, of that time, but it's, it's, you know, this horror story in the, I guess, like the Swiss Alps, where it's high altitude and there's clouds and, and cloud vapour, and similarly, there are monsters in the clouds, And but mm-hmm. there are certain shots that are, you know, the, the vapour creeping under the, um, you know, the, the doorway that are uh, directly you can see the direct link to the fog and the the monster itself is 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 fascinating when it emerges it's this sort of gigantic squid-like beast with um one eye and obviously this is a 50s horror film so you know there's there's a there's an absurdity to it but you know it's quite interesting and quite Lovecraftian which was another thing that I was just wanting to to talk about because of um I know that, you know, obviously John Carpenter, uh, it's one of his, you know, H.P. Lovecraft is one of his biggest influences. And uh, what I find really interesting about John's work is how when Lovecraft's descriptions are what John Carpenter shoots uh, and uh, Lovecraft's descriptions are so vivid um you know these tentacled blasphemies and they're so it's so erudite how uh, lovecraft describes these almost unfathomable beasts um, that would that make no logical sense. They almost defy the laws of physics. But, you know, in some of um, John Carpenter's work, he actually seems to really capture that most specifically, probably being in the mouth of madness. But also the thing, the impos- the creatures that are impossible creatures that defy, you know, um, being put in any kind of box. They're almost indescribably grotesque and, they're, and, and so frightening. So I was checking out um, the Dunwich horror which was, an, I believe, one of um, John Carpenter's uh, big influences. Not, not like directly on the fog, um, per se, but certainly um, the sense of dread. There's an invisible, um, there's an invisible, unfathomable force, an invisible sort of monster terrorizing a small town. Um, so, you know, I think if you're, if you're fans of, um, uh, of Carpenter and his stuff, and you're interested in what were some of these influences came from um it, it it's worth checking out some of the, some of that some of that lovecraft stuff and and possibly um the uh,
0: the trollenberg terror you know you said something that really reminded me of i was reading uh, dance macabre by stephen king mm-hmm. and he talks about lovecraft being his intro and Absolutely. what got the ball rolling for him i guess the father that had run away uh, his father that had run away um his mother had kept the lovecraft books that the father owned in the attic and he would sneak up there and get them. And it was a no, no. And it was like really dark stuff and, you know, not for kids. And, uh, but he's like, it was too late. I already read them all before my mom confiscated them. And he said that HP Lovecraft took the fantastic and made it super serious.
1: Mm. He wrote it
0: as if it were, and you just kind of nailed it.
1: Has gravitas. Yeah. And, and, um, there's a beauty to the prose, even though it might Mm -hmm. be seen as this sort of, uh, a pulpy genre, but it's You know, it's but he it like yeah. yeah, it's it's written with such uh, grace and uh, it's so literate and, and it's you so it, weighty. the word. I love that. Um, it's just it's extraordinary to read. His, yeah. uh, especially those those monster um, descriptions. But there was a. There's also there was a quote that I speaking of Stephen King. You know, as you say, is it was one of the biggest. Um, You know, indebted to Lovecraft and such a huge fan of his, and you know they're they're very very similar in a lot of ways. There was this quote that I love that really nails, I think, what we're what we're talking about with horror and why it works and when it works, which is very simple. And he said um, simply, "I try to create sympathy for my characters, then turn the monsters loose." Yeah, that that is horror in a nutshell. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people forget the first part create sympathy for your characters you know if you don't do that it doesn't matter how great your monsters are but if you if you've got great a great threat great peril um, and uh, great characters in the middle of it then you've nailed horror that's my uh, that's my uh, two cents on that I'd say it was more like Twenty
0: three
1: bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went a bit crazy there. Yeah, three cents. Yeah, lavish. Um, so yeah, that's the fog is amazing. Those are my reasons why I love it so much. I've really been um, looking forward to this, and I'm really grateful that you've given me the opportunity to 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 talk about it, man. I, I love this movie, and um, yeah, um, on the, on its
0: 40th anniversary, it's just as good as ever. <sighs> Phil. Thank you, man, for coming um, and being part of this episode and uh, the first episode of the Endiplex. And I have a feeling that you and I will be uh, sitting together talking about a lot of things, hopefully. I hope so. It's been years. an absolute
1: pleasure and thank you for having me on for the inaugural episode. Uh, this has been this has been a blast, man.
0: Thank you. Awesome. Oh my god, Phil just dematerialized into vapor and just waded away. That was a, how do you do that? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, for everyone, for listening. And uh, if you haven't seen The Fog, you're probably bored by some of this chat at the end here. But go watch it. The Fog 1980. It's, it's a masterpiece. And uh, thank you very much. Take care.